I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. After the apocalypse, a pandemic survival story. Season four, episode four, A Fool's Errand. It was a gray day without rain. A slight wind ruffled the trees. Heavy gray clouds pressed down on the river valley. Even without the rain, the atmospheric pressure drained color from the surrounding forest and made it feel like they were driving through an evil forest tunnel, like something from a Grimm's fairy tale or a Tolkien saga. Through this oppressive atmosphere, Janet guided Brent and the others in the two vehicles back to the distribution center for their prearranged meeting with Mags. Brent rode with Janet in the lead SUV, the driver up front and the two of them side by side in the back like chauffeured dignitaries. Progress was slow. In addition to the poor road conditions, down trees and washouts, there were now sentries from the distribution center hidden along the access road, and they needed to be dealt with carefully to avoid getting shot or causing a panic. Tensions were still high. These short weeks following the battle for the D.C. had been chaotic. The defenders... Never a coordinated military outfit to begin with were like uncoordinated bees swarming around a nest that had been hit by a rock thrown by a petulant boy on a dare. Some of them were hidden behind improvised roadblocks, thrown up across the road like Parisian barricades in anticipation of a renewed assault by the king's army. At each pinch point, Janet would have the vehicle slow down and approach carefully. She would get out slowly with her hands up to calm the frightened watchers. Eventually, when credentials were checked, passphrases exchanged, and shaky fingers taken safely off triggers, the small convoy moved on. Slowly, they progressed, and at each new obstacle, the tense dance was repeated. Brent checked his weapon again and smoothed dust from his pants. He had been observing Janet. He tried to make small talk and draw her out, but she had not said much. She observed him as well. She watched him check his pistol with interest. He noticed and grinned at her like they were in a secret together. An old habit, he said putting the gun away. You know how it is. She did not return the smile. She wasn't angry or unfriendly, per se, 
but she seemed grim, determined, and on task. It was like the human interaction element of their conversation was much further down her list of priorities. Looking more closely, he saw her hollowed-out cheeks and sunken eyes, the tell-tale leanness of a person who wasn't taking in as many calories as they were burning. He saw it a lot now in the apocalypse. Fat reserves were spent as people were pushed into the red zone of their endurance, both physically and mentally, just trying to survive. You could see it in the faces, in the cheeks, as the body dug around in the couch cushions, looking for fat reserves to burn. In Janet's case, it wasn't due to food not being available, but to the high level of physical activity and lack of rest in these past few months. Like one of those long-endurance events where you carry rocks, climb over walls, and crawl under barbed wire. Except in Janet's case, there was no finish line. These days, he had observed, all survivors were hardened, if not broken. Now, nine months into the apocalypse, things were getting lean. This made for dangerous times. In the history of the world, starving people almost always made poor decisions. Starving people had nothing to lose. It would make his mission to talk these same people into rebuilding that much harder. He tried again to engage her in productive conversation. So, tell me about this distribution center community, he asked. What do you do there? How are you managing to stay on top of food and supplies? How are you holding up? Janet thought for a few seconds. Not much to tell, she said. Just survivors doing what they need to, trying to protect what's left and help people the best they can. Brent could tell that she was holding back, but that was okay. He knew trust had to be earned, so he continued pushing a bit more. Who's in charge there? What challenges are you facing? Janet did not answer. After a few seconds, she redirected his questions back to him. What is the situation at your bunker? What is your role in this? Why are you making this trip? Oh, well, he thought, she doesn't want to tell me too much, and she's probing me for info. He stayed placid outwardly, but sighed, resigned inwardly. It's never easy. He was willing to share information. Up to a point. In his world, divulging information was always a double-edged sword. It could be used against him and his group, but sharing information could also build trust. Similar to the growing shortages of food that appeared more and more as what was left over from the old world was harder to come by, most people he met were starved for information, too. It had all happened so fast that even the imperfect news distribution systems that existed went silent overnight, 
gone were the local, national, and global news networks. Even the ubiquitous social media killed off by the virus, just like the people were. All most people knew was their own experience, which could typically be summed up as, Everybody died, and then we survived the best we could. In the spirit of diplomatic exchange, Brent explained his role. I'm a diplomat of sort. He smiled. I make these trips to talk to survivors and see what their situations are. My mission is to collect information about what's left, what the situation is, and recruit anyone willing to help us rebuild. He concluded. Rebuild what? Janet asked. Leadership, organization, a functioning government, and a path forward to the future, he said with practiced confidence. Janet gave him a curious look and asked, And how's that going? He smiled and retorted a bit too brightly. Every day is a new adventure. As soon as he said this, he felt disingenuous and knew she saw it in him as well. Sometimes he felt like a modern-day Don Quixote, tilting at apocalyptic windmills. His mission was a national one, and... Truth be told, they reached out to these local groups to find out what resources could be used, human or otherwise, to forward that national mission. These local groups were mostly just trying to survive. They didn't care about the government. At some point, their desire to survive would conflict with his mission to rebuild. He had his duty to the Constitution, the continuity of government protocols, and his boss at the bunker, the general. But as the world spiraled slowly down into chaotic entropy, he wondered if the protocols weren't a fool's errand. This hardened woman suspected it, too. What could he say to this resilient survivor that would break through her shell? He could tell her about how his dad had sent him to military school when he was 15 for trying to steal beer off the loading dock at the local superette with his friends and how it had been the best thing that had ever happened to him. How he had found purpose and kinship and discipline in the military. No, he couldn't tell her all that. Someday, he hoped, he might still find a woman who he could tell that to. But this wasn't that woman, and this wasn't the time. In the end, he decided to just give her the facts. When the virus hit, the continuity of government protocols were activated. Military and government leadership were instructed to proceed to their assigned survival bunkers. She didn't seem to care one way or the other, so he continued. We had one up at Oak Ridge where I was assigned. It was designed to house 1,000 people for three years in the event of a nuclear war. 
Eventually, around 300 local, state, and federal personnel made it inside before we closed the doors. But by then it was too late. The virus was already inside. Less than 20 of us survived. Janet let his story hang in the air for a moment and then asked, How many of these bunkers are there? A few hundred if you include the local and state facilities. We were in contact with some of them through the comms network. Here, he paused and darkened. It was a shit show. Most went dark in the first week. The ones that were still online were in the same situation as us. Most of the personnel died. So, he concluded, we've got resources and plans, but not enough people to execute them. That doesn't sound very encouraging, Janet said, looking at the floor. How about the federal government and the military? What about the president? Did any of those people survive? Brent paused. We don't really know. It's hard to tease out what's going on, he continued. But there is a protocol in place for this kind of event, hence my mission. Finally... They approached the distribution center itself. They did not arrive until well after dark. Here, there were cement barriers staggered along the road like dragon's teeth that forced approaching vehicles to slow down and swerve. Security at the front gate of the distribution center was tight, and Brent could see the remnants of the defensive battle— Shipping containers were stacked around the facility to provide a defensive wall. Men and women with guns peered out from sandbagged firing positions. Barbed wire ran along the tops and fronts of barricades. Pockmarks from bullets were drilled into buildings and containers. Grim stains remained on the pavement, and empty shell casings were piled in the corners. To Brent's professional eyes, the defenses looked, on the one hand, well thought out, on the other hand, hastily constructed and amateurish. It reminded him of a stockade fort in an old western movie surrounded by hostile natives. Janet ushered them through the gate and inside. She directed them to the admin building, Brent saw that the parking lot was littered with shot-up cars, rubble, and trash. He recalled her comment, Just survivors, doing what they need to, trying to protect what's left. That impressed him now as a gross understatement. He got out and leaned back on the hood of the SUV, surveying the scene, and suddenly felt an overwhelming tiredness from the long day. Stay here, Janet said. I'll find out what happens next. Okay, boss, we'll wait here. Brent offered a smile and half of a mock salute. He relaxed, leaning on the SUV for support and wondered what time it was. He pressed a button on his G-Shock watch and saw that it was well after midnight. He was tired. As much as he stayed in shape and was mentally focused, he wasn't getting any younger. He would be 50 in less than two years, and he had been thinking about retiring 
Then all this happened. He still had all his hair, but the barber at the PX would jokingly remind him that salt and pepper was getting saltier. He leaned back on the hood and rubbed his neck, looking up at the moonless sky. The clouds had cleared, and the stars of the Milky Way splashed intensely in a long rope of glittering brightness across the horizon. It was stunning, really. The way you could see the stars now that the lights of cities were extinguished, to see them like this, naked and wild across the sky, it made you understand the Greeks and their vivid imaginings of constellations. Janet emerged from the admin building and broke into Brent's reverie. She was accompanied by two armed men who followed her sleepily, like she had dragged them out of bed. She gave instructions to the men, and they left, escorting the prisoners with them. She turned to Brent and his two drivers. It's too late to meet today. Mags and her team will see you in the morning. I did get someone to open the cafeteria so you can get something to eat, and then I'll show you to your sleeping arrangements. She looked tired now, too. All right, ma'am, we're grateful for the help. Brent pulled a small duffel bag from the back of the SUV and followed her. They grabbed a quick meal of powdered eggs and canned fruit juice served by a grumpy older woman who probably would rather still be asleep. Plans were made to meet in the morning, and Janet showed them to a room with cots. Sorry about the accommodations, she said. This place really wasn't designed as an extended-stay hotel. That's fine, ma'am, Brent said. I've slept in worse places. And indeed he had. One more thing, he asked as she was preparing to leave. I like to run in the morning. Can you let the people on watch know? She considered this curiously for a few moments and responded, I'll tell them to be aware of your presence, but stay inside the fence. If you run the perimeter, it's around two miles to a lap. Thank you, Brent said, and they all retired to get what sleep that they could. He rose early the next morning and dug the carefully rolled-up gym shorts out of his small duffel bag. He laced up his shoes and pushed out into the morning glow of a sun that had not quite risen. The birds were waking up with a chorus of chirps and calls. Yesterday's oppressive slate sky had cleared. Today would be bright and warm. In a different time, on a different day, it would have been a beautiful morning. But here, now, in the apocalypse, the morning breeze carried the charred smell of burnt plastics and gasoline from the recent battle. It reminded him of mornings in Beirut, where he also was told to stay inside the fence. 
Brent was a man of habit, and he had a morning routine. He ran every morning because it was part of who he was. It was something he could control. It was a way to start each day with a statement, a statement of pure discipline. In that way, he started each day by slightly bending reality to his will. Brent's morning runs were not a fitness routine. He was not some weekend warrior fitness fanatic training for the local 5K park run. He ran because it was part of his mission, a thing that had been instilled in him when he joined up as a 19-year-old. His body was one of his tools, and he kept it clean and fit, just like his weapons. The first thing he noticed as he trotted out of the back of the admin building were the fresh graves, hastily dug, unmistakable, oblong mounds of fresh earth lined up along the fence. There were no stones and no markers, but at least they were burying the dead again and not just piling them up. Was that progress or just the last echoes of a dying civilization's habits. He couldn't help but recall the hills of Arlington National Cemetery rolling with the white specks of perfectly arranged tombstones. Brent continued around the periphery of the complex, noting the rows of warehouses, trucks, trailers, and containers. There was infrastructure here. That explained why they were fighting over it. As he made his way along the fence to the back of the complex, he saw some telltale signs of the recent battle. Some buildings here were burnt out, and the ground was blackened and greasy. The chemical smell of burning was harsh in his throat. There were dug-in firing positions with shell casings and empty ammo containers. It was a jarring hellscape, even to an experienced veteran like Brent. It was demonstrable evidence of the ferocity of the exchange here. Just survivors doing what they need to, trying to protect what's left. He heard the rumble of engines and men talking. Beyond the fence, a small party of workers was using a bulldozer and an excavator to dig a defensive trench. One of the men was carrying a clipboard and gesticulating. They had the ground open in a fresh wound and had made a few hundred feet of progress. God help us, Brent thought. They've built a wall and now they're digging a moat. He kept running and looped back, heading towards the front entrance and the admin building to complete the circuit. What he saw next stopped him in his tracks. Lined up between two long buildings were four cattle cars, the kind used to ship cows or pigs from the farm to the factory to be processed. Except these had men in them. Dirty men. Lying on the straw or listlessly peering through the grates.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my survivor friends. Good to be with you again on this fine Friday. Today is episode four of season four, and we are moving into autumn up here in New England where I live. This show will drop sometime in December, sorry, not December, September 2023. And uh, as of last week, when I was writing this, it was still raining. We had storm after storm blowing through, flooding, knocking down trees. And surprisingly enough, where I live, we have a lot of trees. Why is that surprising? Well, you know, way back when, before the Europeans showed up, it was mostly old growth forest here in North America. And then they cut down all the forest uh, for farms. And so if you were to teleport back in time 100 years or even less, you would find where I live mostly just open farms and fields with sheep and cows and only the odd single tree here and there. But then with the Industrial Revolution, urbanization, and the development of the suburbs, most of the farms went out of business or moved somewhere else, and the trees all grew back, only to be knocked down by storms now. Irony. This week, I will try my level best to avoid a long, thoughtful essay on the meaning of life, since my expository comments after the last episode were a bit overwrought. Overwrought. Overwrought is a good old Middle English word. In this case, I'm using the figurative sense of to work into a state of excitement and confusion. Now, I believe overwrought was originally a past participle tense version of overwork. Overwrought is a state of being, and therefore either a noun or an adjective, and by modern English grammar rules, should not have a tense. But if you remember, the earliest influence of English, that is Old English and Middle English, they were Germanic. And the Germanic languages have noun tenses. So lots of fun vocabulary survived in modern English, but noun tenses, thank heavens, for the most part did not. We kept two. We kept single versus plural. So noun. So think of nouns like dog versus dogs. But in the original Germanic languages, the nouns did all the work. You didn't have pronouns like I, you, me. You didn't have male or female. You didn't have possessives like mine or yours. All of that was built into the noun, which is a bit mind-blowing. 
I suppose if I spoke any Germanic languages, it might, I might not find this so weird of a concept. Um, from what I've heard, Icelandic is the closest thing, the closest modern language to Old English. According to Acast, we have five listeners in Iceland. And when they hear this, perhaps they will become overwrought. So what's Chris reading this week? Well, I am so glad you asked. I have finished The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. The backstory is that one of those What's Your Favorite Book posts on Facebook, somebody was saying how this was their favorite book, and they reread it every year. Now, note to listeners, which you've already figured out, this is where I will apologize for my French pronunciations. Now, I realize that this was a bit of a hole in my literature education. I have read a good portion of European classics, most of the Russian novelists, the English, a smattering of French, like Madame Bovary, and at least one of the La Comédie Humaine by Henri de Balzac, but I have never read any Dumas. So, as I do, I procured a copy from Thrift Books and got busy reading. The version I got was 531-page paperback that took me a couple of weeks to get through. Where to start? This book has so many layers to it. The writing is good, the storytelling is good, if not a bit convoluted and fantastical. It's historical fiction based in the time of the restoration of the French monarchy after Napoleon's field return from exile in Alba. It was contemporary when it was written to these events, which means his readers would have fresh memory, living memory of the events and the time period in which the story is set. And I enjoyed the novel, but I got to admit, I got a bit lost in all the complex relationships that he weaves into the plot. I lost track of who was who and why I should care. I kept thinking that it would be really handy to have a diagram of how all these characters were related. And it turns out that I should have Googled it because there is such a diagram, and I will post it in this post when I put this up on my website at oldmanapocalypse.com. So it is a historical novel, but it has elements of almost like a pulp fiction to it. On the one hand, it has the heady themes of revenge and redemption and forgiveness. On the other, it has these titillations of illicit affairs, speculation, murder, and so much more that would have made it probably pretty shocking, a real page-turner in its time. It's a bit far-fetched, but what good tale isn't? It's not a hard read. It's not like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky that make you work. It's more like a, like a Michener novel based in the 19th century. <laughs> I give it a solid B-plus rating. What is Chris watching? Well, thank you again for asking. You're always so interested and kind and concerned about me. I am truly grateful. I have found a channel on my cable called Tubi, T-U-B-I, and it's all free movies and TV. But I found they have a whole bunch of apocalyptic and sci-fi in their portfolio, and just in general, they have the type of movie that I like when I'm looking for, you know, when I down my tools at night and I pop open a cold IPA. 
Uh, For instance, I watched Clerks 2, the 2006 sequel to Clerks, Kevin Smith's breakout movie that he made with his friends for $27,000 in 1994. It's a really good example of why creativity can be more important than investment dollars. Another movie I watched, which I thought was going to be really stupid, but was surprisingly enjoyable, was Iron Sky from 2012. And the premise for this is that in 1945, the Nazis escaped to build a base on the dark side of the moon, and now they are ready to come back. It was an entertaining, well-made movie. They struck the right balance between camp and fiction and action. The the acting is, it's appropriate. It's not grapes of wrath, but it goes well with a couple of beers. Now, you might ask this, Chris, but aren't there commercials in these free movies and TV? Yes, there are. There are programmatic ads in these movies. But, you know, I grew up with commercial TV, so I'm okay with it. They don't oversaturate the ad load or do that super annoying backload thing that the commercial TV stations do now, which is they put all the ads at the end when you're already hooked and just want to see the last five minutes of the movie. They don't do that. Uh, It's just enough, really, just to give you a chance to let the dog out or go get another beer. So, you know, give Tubi a watch and let me know what your experience is. Now for our business updates this week. Remember that you can get these updates in your email inbox by uh, going to my website at oldmanapocalypse.com and subscribing to the blog. It's free, and you get the handy links to what I've just talked about. For instance, let's say you are now listening and you have this driving, compelling reason, this need to learn more about Balzac. Well, there's a link for that. You can always... Buy me a coffee, subscribe on Patreon. I just about break even on this show, uh, so don't worry about it. I'm not I'm not buying Porsches. Uh, it's always great to give us a review on your podcast app or recommend us to a friend. We have now 412 people in our Facebook group. I am still working on turning After the Apocalypse into a series of books. My intention is to create from the manuscript something high quality and compelling that will stand alone from the podcast. Same story, but unique pieces of content, and more importantly, a unique experience for you, the customer. The manuscript for season one is now in the hands of a structural editor, and hopefully we can start to see the fruits of that effort soon. That's what you say when you don't have a date and you don't want to set false expectations, and you're not quite sure if you're going to get it done. You say, soon. That's it for me this week. Don't forget to enjoy your life. A lot of the time I get so caught up in in all the stuff that I'm working on or planning that I forget to smell the roses. So don't become too overwrought yourself. And keep surviving.